Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. It's so good to see you. It is really good to see you. This is author Kim Taylor Blakemore, and you can hear how happy I am to have her back. Before I even begin asking you questions about it, I just want you to know that it was it was just a really fun read. Oh god. I loved that quiet oh good from Kim. It was like a grateful exhale, as if she's been holding her breath, waiting to talk about her new book, The Deception. It's about a medium. Someone who can hear the dead. It's set in the 1870s at the height of a spiritualist sensation. And this medium, Kim imagines, loses her ghostly muse and turns to a very clever illusionist to help her just fake it a little until she can make it. Oh my gosh, you have such a wicked sense of humor, Kim. One of the other things I love about Kim is how she sifts through history to find her muses. And so that's where we begin. So um, where to start? Talk to me a little bit about how these characters came to you. Well, they came to me first through research I was doing on 1870s New England. And I ran across the Fox sisters, F-O-X, and they were basically the beginnings of spiritualism in in New England. Um, So they were two young girls. They heard something rapping in their house. They called their mother, their mother, mother, there's a ghost in the cellar. That's who we're hearing. His name is Mr. Splitfoot. And I think we can communicate with them. They made this ghost say yes, rap once for yes two for no, and they'd ask him questions. And so this village in New York was like crazy, and they dug up the cellar. They found like a finger bone or something like that. Oh, there's a ghost. So all these people came to the house, and then the mother's like, I can't take this anymore. So she shipped the girls off to their sister in another town to be like, you take care of these two girls. And the sister said, I see money. Mm. And so she was very much, you know, groomed them to be these sort of famous psychics. So they went all on tour and they were very world famous for a while, those two. Wow. And then one of them married a Catholic guy and she denounced what they did. She got on a stage in New York and said, we're frauds and this is what we did. And we used, we learned how to snap our toes. And she took off her stockings and shoes and snapped her toes to show them that they were frauds. So she sort of gave up the game 
Wow. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. So I was reading that and then I was thinking, you know, I'm always like into like looking at mediums and I, I feel ghosts, I've seen ghosts. So I'm like, what an interesting concept because there's the illusionist and there's the authentic mediums. So the result is the same. So what happens if you put the two together, <laughs> mix them up a little bit? Yeah. The medium in this case is Maud and she talks, it's her calling to bring comfort. And Clem says sort of the same thing, actually pushes Maud, encourages Maud by, by sort of drawing on that sense of good in her to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. And so they do seem like they're coming at this with the same sense of service. Um, that concept of you know doing good and it's for the living gets to this idea of the whole story being about who is good and what is good. Yes. And even the way you just drew that parallel between authentic and the inauthentic, uh, there are kind of two sides of the same coin. So did you mean it to be uh, a morality play? Not when I started. When I started, I just wanted to see what they would do on, together on the stage, so to speak. Um, and as I kept going, I kept going, this is a story of good and evil. Yeah. You know, and very clearly to me. So, and yet the evil is so absolutely seductive, right? Because it is, it is like, well, the end result's the same. What does it matter how we get there? we're still providing solace to people. We're still letting them think they've connected with their loved ones. Yes, it's so seductive. That's a great word. It's appealing and seductive and seems like, what's the harm, you know? But you do, you get, it is this big question of, does the end justify the means? Right, right, right. Yeah. And how that affects someone. And I think Maude is the one that it, it's obviously affects because she she is absolutely honest and authentic. So how does that, working that way where it is towards the good, but maybe those means are a little wobbly <laughs> in terms of what they are, how does it affect you as a human? And I think it affects her very badly. Yes, she's drawn in. You write amazing female characters. I love both of these women. But in this book, you also write a really seductive, I'll use that word again, a male character. And Russell is a thespian. He works with Clem. I think more than once you make the reader question Russell's motives. He's the first place where we sort of like, what are the ethics here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's he about, right? It was one of my favorite ways that you drew the reader into that bigger question. Mm-hmm. And I love Russell. I think he's so charming and like, I, I loved his entrance, you know, in the seance. And when you first, first meet him, like, oh, he's so cute. And that's another seductive thing, right? And yet he's got his own little amoral, immoral. I'm not sure where he sits. I'm not, I think he just tries to land someplace that seems fun. Mm-hmm. I don't think he likes to struggle much. He's walking the line. Like if we're saying that these two female protagonists, these two are are kind of representing two sides of a coin. He's really walking that line. Yeah. 
um, which is also just such a human quality to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he has my favorite, my favorite line. He says to Maud, you're the last bit of good I know. And Maud replies, then let me be good. And I just, I loved him in that moment, but then not very long after that, he's having a conversation with Clem and he, he lets the reader see that he's maybe play acting. Yes. And I think that's human of him because I think he believes himself at any minute in, in the story. He's very present. There's not much planning with him, right? It's like, I do believe you're good. No, no, no. I'm play acting. No, it's you. I love you, Clem. And he believes it a hundred percent. Yes. Oh, he's just written so richly. I enjoyed him a lot. In the background for both of these women, you peel back and let us see their childhoods too. And I think that also really plays well to the whole storyline. And I think it also supports this idea of that, that we're kind of a product of our past, right? That those things stay with us and that there, there is some sort of justification for behavior sometime based on things that have happened to you. You're like, oh, that's in her past. Sure. Maude was a famous medium as a child, and her father manipulated her throughout her whole childhood and manipulated that storyline of the medium. So she became very pliable, which allows her to be pliable later on and be the perfect opening for Clementine to say, ah, this is someone who will do what I say. Yes, I think, too, there's a couple of times Clem talks about the future. The future is a grand thing. and. I thought that was funny. The first time it came up, I thought it was funny because we're really so, the whole story is kind of rooted in the past or ghosts. Dead people. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yet she's like, the future's the thing. The future's the thing. And look forward, look towards the future. The past is too painful for her. So um, she has a paragraph in there where she talks about her past when she's sitting at the dining room table with, with Maude. And I think it's one of their first times they actually bond. That scene, that little teeny paragraph, I had written like a 10-page chapter, and it was so dark, but it, it made me realize that Clem runs from her past. That's what she does. Everything's to get away from the past. Mm. The future is bright and shiny. That's a good place to pause this conversation and listen to Clem, Clementine the clever illusionist. What you'll hear is from chapter one. But you should know the chapters alternate perspectives, and Brilliance Audio produced it as a dual narration. This is so fun for the listener. When you hear chapters about Clem, it's narrator Hope Newhouse. When you hear about Maud, it's Gail Shalin. These narrators capture the inner workings the darkness, and the light of these characters so effectively. So let's listen. This is from The Deception, written by Kim Taylor Blakemore, and the narrator here is Hope Newhouse. Clementine Watkins hooked her thumb to the parlor curtain, tugging it enough to spy out on the proceedings of the room. It was a late night, a Wednesday. Her head hurt from too much whiskey the night before, 
Her bum, pressed to the window, had chilled to a state of numbness. The trousers and jacket she wore gave no protection from the seeping damp cold beyond the glass panes and shutters. She wriggled her toes in her socks, curling them under, then stretching them out. A yawn threatened. She swallowed it down and forced herself to ignore the cold behind her and take heed of the goings-on. Or lack thereof. Five people sat around a table, hands clasped, eyes shut, faces wobbling and gleaming in the light of a solitary candle. Two men, three ladies, the family ought, and a Mr. Sullivan, to be precise. Clem was close enough to touch the shoulder of Mr. Ott. He would have done better with two chairs. Now he shifted his weight from one buttock to the other, and every so often let out a discomfited groan. To his right sat a young girl of longish neck and pinkish nose, her mouth already curved like her mother's, the next participant at the table, in a permanent scowl. The mother wore the finest of mourning, soft velvet ribbons, hard jet buttons, crinoline that glimmered in the low light. The brooch at her neck boasted a braid of hair and a dangling ruby. Next to her sat Mr. Sullivan. He had come alone, trailing behind the family and twisting his hat in his hand. He had bobbed his head in a mumbled greeting before the medium requested they sit. The medium herself, Maud Price, sat still as a statue, elbows locked straight, shoulder blades pushed against the slats of her chair. She wore a simple dress of organdy, pale as her skin and hair. She was of no great beauty, with a high forehead, a pinch of nose and chin. Beauty, of course, had naught to do with psychical gifts, not at all. Still, Clem was of the opinion it did not hurt. Suddenly, Maud Price lifted her shoulder, an inadvertent jerk of movement, enough to alert the others that soon there would be communion. Soon, the dearly departed would join the circle, causing the stiff material of her skirts to rustle. The girl's eyes snapped open, and she watched Maud. Clem slipped the curtain back, lest her hiding place be spied. She had seen the sharp spark in the girl's eye. Doubt. Well, after all, they had been sitting now for an impossibly long time, and Maud had made no movement save that twitch of shoulder and a few bobbles of her eyeballs under the translucent skin of her lids. Mr. Ott cleared his throat. So sorry. It's the weather, the mother said. Horrible spring. Why are your eyes open, Celia? Why are yours? The daughter answered. Then Mr. Sullivan began to burble and broke into a sob. Would you all be quiet? Clem leaned against the window frame and picked at her thumbnail. This would be the time for a good, long, disembodied screech. She was tempted, but this wasn't her place. Her place was to observe. I am in difficulty. The note had come to Clem's boarding house, slipped under the tea mug on the breakfast tray, and nearly used as a napkin by Russell. But Clem had nicked it in time, and now she was here, in the too-hot room, 
with the too cold window. You're squeezing too tight, mother. Pay attention. I don't believe in ghosts. I... The girl gave a shriek. Clem flicked the curtain. The candle had been snuffed. The wick glowed orange and umber and then went out. Okay, I, can I tell you a cool thing that Renee Richards, the medium, said to me when we first talked? So we had this amazing interview. But when we started, she said, you know, I, I just keep seeing her. She doesn't know me, right? She hasn't read the book or anything like that. She said, I just keep seeing this, this young girl covered in water and mud. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that is a character. And she said to me, she said, when she does readings with authors, she can see characters they're writing. And I was like, that's crazy. Because, no, you know, I don't give my book to anybody to read as I'm writing it. I have one, one trusted person I give it to when I'm done. So nobody would have known about this character. Yeah. That's so interesting that someone could sit with you and see I think it's an energy. And she was talking about how all those, it's all energy. So very interesting. Well, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought up um, mud and water because you do a lot of things that make this book atmospheric. There's a lot in your descriptions that just bring the reader right into the world um, that you're creating. But the one atmospheric thing that becomes, I think, a character is rain. So much rain in this book. Why? Why did you do that? Why rain? Let's see. We used all the snow up in the companion. I used all the summer heat in After Alice Bell. I'm like, what What weather can I do? I actually think weather is really, really important in, these, in setting atmosphere. And you can use it against the characters or for the characters. And that weather plays some pretty big roles in the plot later on, right? So um, it was just something about how I wanted it dreary and dark and damp and everything. It's like, this is annoying. You know, the streets flooding. This is annoying. The walls seeping water. This is annoying. <laughs> and so I always think weather, weather, animals, for instance, there's, there's generally some bird in each of my stories, not just the tin birds. You did create a, an interesting bird in this book. But the other animal that I feel like becomes part of, really part of the story, obviously, is dogs. Let's talk about the dog. Let's talk about the dog. For me, one of the most impressive parts of how you wrote the dog is that you give us little hints about what the dog is thinking. That maybe sounds funny, but like you get, there's expressions the dog gives when he's around certain people. And I don't know, do you, do you think animals can see people's character can feel people's character because it's like you let the dog sort of give us clues yeah 100 percent. i think dogs can really read people and and i think they pick their person and ethelred picked maud you know but you also see through that dog and how you know it's their action so i i've always had dogs so i watch them a lot and i watch what they do and how they behave and what's what are their little hints that they like this person better than that person or trust that person? And so I tried to like capture that in how that dog 
acted. And I, I, I don't know why, I just want, I wanted Clementine to have something really good. And she rescued that dog from a dog fighting ring. Yes. And the dog, the dog is also from a wounded past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was nice. It was a nice human quality for Clem to gravitate towards this injured animal. It was part of how you saw her, the duplicity of her, right? Yeah. Yeah. I thought all of your characters were very dimensional that way. You know, if there is sort of an overarching good and evil idea, it's so blurry. It's blurry in the morality play because they all sort of shift back and forth between good and falsity. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, let's talk about hats. Hats. One of our main characters has a thing for hats. She's not fancy in, in a lot of the other parts of her life, right? And so, but you've given her this penchant for hats. Where did that come from? I think that to her, they were just a beautiful thing. You know, we get obsessed with very odd things in life and her odd thing was hats. She's very austere otherwise. She wears just plain white when she's doing seances. She has no money for a maid or coal for the stove or anything, but she will go out and get in debt for a perfect hat. And it's just, I think it's just something for her that makes her feel good. She doesn't drink, she doesn't smoke, gamble, but she loves those hats. I thought they were great. I wondered if you had patterned some of the descriptions off of real hats that you'd seen historically, like that they just were, they sounded amazing. And well, at that time, those hats were starting to get super, 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 super big, right? And like tons of birds and feathers and tall and really ridiculous hats. Yeah, I thought the costuming and the way that you handled clothing through the whole thing was really interesting because you have Clementine wearing men's trousers and putting on um, clothes that belong to Maud's dad. And it's very interesting the way you have them choosing their dress. And I, I felt like it was also a part of that era, but also part of their character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think Clementine would have no qualms about going in someone's closet and taking the clothes. Your father's dead. He doesn't need those. I'll wear them. But for her, and she says earlier when Maude looks at her, like basically saying, why are you wearing those? She says, this is what affords me the night. And it's part of her own disguises as she goes around and figures out who, you know, everybody's little histories and their family histories and the dead bodies and in the graveyard, because she's not above robbing her grave. Yes. Um, and all of this is just how she keeps changing. And yet it is one of the most authentic parts of her because it, she, it just gives her this freedom to be whoever she is. You know, psychics at that time, or excuse me, mediums at that time were generally women. And it, a lot of them were able to say things through the spirits they conjured that they would never have said in their own self. So they could be totally suffragists talk about women's rights flirt with everyone in the audience be bold and brash and and just say whatever they want politically or about the world or about men and then they'd be like that was just katie the ghost from new zealand it wasn't me oh that's really interesting right so it was a lovely way they used that to sort of state things they wanted to talk about because right at that time was really big the suffragist movement was really, really big. 
Yes, you reference a newspaper. That was called the banner, right? The banner. The banner of light. Banner of light. And I literally wrote in the margin of the book, wait, is this real? Because I was already so in the world, I could just believe that it was real. Um, but I wondered if you did, if you did tap into real resources like that. Yes. Yes. So the spiritualist movement was, this is not the height of it in 1877, but this is about the time when everyone was believing it. So frauds were a lot easier to do what they could do. So there was huge amount of spiritualist newspapers as the spiritualist movement grew. So all over the country, there's hundreds of them, but the banner of light was the most popular one. It turns out that the group that digitizes all of these spiritualist newspapers is one town over from where I live. Oh, so I wanted to go there. They said, there's nothing to see. It's all online. So I didn't need to go there. But as I do with any primary research I do is I will go to the days that the book is written and find the newspaper for those days. So I went to the Banner of Light for April and May 1877 and read through those. And they're fascinating because there's just weird like articles and ads for things and, and books that are written about parting the veil and how you did it. And, and the back page is all letters from the dead. So a medium will come and, and listen to the spirits and she'll write them up. Mostly she's, as I said, and people could read the back. And it was almost like reading, you know, Facebook or something. Hey, I'm looking for this. My friend, Cora, I just want her to know that the, the broom is in the back closet and I was murdered by my such and such. Or someone says, I don't want to come back. It's beautiful here. And I'm sitting on the porch with my old ma. And they're just like these fascinating stories. I'm like, these, these mediums are fantastic creative writers. Or they're real. You know, so constantly through the research, I was doing the same thing that the book does. Is it real? Is it authentic? Is it real? Is it authentic? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I love that. There was one one book I read by Mrs. J.H. Conan. It was a biography of her written in 1877, I believe. And she was a medical medium. They talk about when she was a kid, she's a little girl, so this would be like the 1840s, maybe. She's walking down the road and this guy comes up to her and says, I need your help. I need you to help. There's someone sick. I'm a doctor, but I need help could you come with me to this house and help this person? She's like, okay, I'll go with you. So she goes with this guy, does this whatever medical thing he asks her to do, thinking he's real. And he turns out to be a spirit. And he's a doctor who becomes her spirit guide. So her whole like fame comes from him calling her to go to people's houses to do medical things. Wow. Yes. And then she's also like got a, a parlor and does seances with levitations and all this crazy stuff that happens. And I finished this book of, of everything she did down to like surgeries. And I was like, this woman, is she real? What, what in the world? What a great story. I mean, she alone was a great story. Well, the idea of a guide, and that's really what the launching point for this story is, that the guide has gone missing. Yes. That she had a guide all through childhood, and then suddenly he doesn't come to her. Mm -hmm. That's why she's going broke. Like you were describing, she has no coal in the furnace. She has no, she's not able to use that as a means to support herself. 
That's right. And she says that he's the one who opens the gate and closes it. So he's the one who says who can come through and who can talk. And so in the book, she can't understand what anyone's saying, who is there, why they're there. Yeah, so that launching point, why do you think he disappeared? I don't think she knows why. And when I asked the medium, I said, the got her guide disappears. She said they do. And you may not know why. Maybe it's their time they wanted to continue on. You know, when I was writing Maud, because she's an authentic medium, I didn't want a Hollywood version of a psychic. I wanted an authentic version. That's why I talked to mediums and interviewed them to get their experiences and to say, hey, I've got this character. She's clairaudient. She hears the spirits. Um, and here are some for issues. And they would be like, yes, that's right. That's right. And they all said every medium has completely different experiences. Well, one of the experiences that she has, she does this thing where she can see what's just about to happen. Yeah. Like she'll say someone's going to knock on the door. Yeah. She doesn't have power, right? Mm-hmm. Something works through her, but she's not a powerful person. Exactly. Yeah, I like that, that she could just see tiny bit, just a minute in the future, but it's not all consistent and she can't control it. It's just like you said, it's like, oh, someone's at the door. And then a knock. And then the knock. Yeah. Whereas what what Clementine conjures, what she creates, you know, through these illusionist fake walls and mirrors and uh, using sound reverberating and um, so, so clever. Mm-hmm. So I did the authentic medium. I had to do research for her and I needed to do research for the authentic fraud. So do all these tricks and illusions work that Clementine does? And would they have worked in 1877? Things with water and disappearing heads, and but all, all done with chemicals. And then I was like researching um, different ways mirrors and glasses used. So the original glass act was to put a giant 40 foot sheet of glass on stage as an angle and if you put someone down in the pit on a at a certain angle like laying on something and lit it it would create a ghost image on stage so the person on stage could fight or talk to a spirit but the problem is a 40 foot piece of glass you get one thumbprint on it and the whole audience can see it and so it was absolutely ridiculous but that idea is what drives the haunted house at Disneyland. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I found a guy, he happened to actually be where I lived, named the historical conjurer. And he does 19th century magic all over the country. And I said, here's Clementine, this is what she does. I say, can she snap her finger and have a flame be on the end of it? Ah, yeah, she could do that. This is how it's done, you know? And how how is that phosphorus done? And he said that was paint. So when Maud gets her face, a mask done of her face, those would be painted with phosphorus. So they glowed in the dark. You just have them pull out and come back in through curtains. Oh, there's a disembodied spirit floating around. So he, I went through everything with him to all the little details. Like, you know, when, when Russell comes up to her and says, your string is reflecting in the light. If you're using cat gut, you need to use the horsetail hair. And that doesn't reflect in light. So when you, you know, have things bobbing and floating. Yes. It's amazing that you found someone like that. 
first of all, but also that then it's not amazing to me that you used someone like that because you create a world with this that's really easy for the reader to buy into. Well, thank you. I think one of my goals when I write historical fiction is that I write it for people who don't like historical fiction. So that it's telling details, just enough of a detail. Yes. That's a balancing act as an author then, as a storyteller. It's a balancing act. You know, for me, if somebody says, I just felt like I was dropped in that world and I just had to navigate it with them. And these were just the everyday things. I'm like, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Dropped into that world. That's definitely how it feels. So I'd love to know what you think about the deception. Find me on socials and let me know if it seeped into your bones the way it did for me. I'd like to thank Kim's publisher, Lake Union Publishing, and the audiobook publisher, Brilliance Audio. Please look for other books by Kim Taylor Blakemore and for other stories narrated by Gail Shalin and Hope Newhouse. I'll put links to all their websites in the show notes. As always, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening.